This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Let us pray. Lord, would you be present? Would you make us present to you? Uh, Help us to know uh, more of who you are and as a result, who you've made us to be and who you will make us to be. And then we enter in with angels and archangels to give you praise for you are good. O Lord, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Today's sermon basically can be summed up in one word. Amen. Maybe I'll go sit down. Um, It's the perfect word that sums up All Saints Day. There are seven principal feasts in in the church calendar, seven major feasts, and All Saints is the last in the year. Uh, perhaps you're from, perhaps you're relatively new to this, to Christianity, or you're new to this tradition. The church calendar works, it splits in half, and it works where one half, uh, extols the great deeds of God, the great things that God has done, and six of those feasts take place in half the year. It's, it's Christmas, and God so loved the world, it's, uh, Easter, that the Son so loved those whom he calls friends that he laid down his life and he rose again and made the whole creation new. It's, it's the um, ascension uh, of Jesus. It's a Pentecost when the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. It's Trinity Sunday where we try to put it all together. But then the second half of the year comes along where we go into the effect that these great deeds of God have worked out that the kingdom of God is among us, that God is at work right here and right now on earth as in heaven. And then we get to the end of the year, which we're nearing, Advent is the beginning of a new year, and we come to All Saints Day. It's kind of the exclamation point on the year. Because what it does is that we celebrate what God has done and the glory and majesty of God, but on All Saints, we get a glimpse of how that glory is reflected back on us. And folks, we look pretty good too. In the light of Christ, we look good. And so All Saints Day is this feast where once a year we take stock of what is the effect? What is it that's being held out to us? What is God's promise to us? Where is it all headed? And the word that sums it up, I I just believe, is the word amen. I want to explore the word amen with you for a few minutes and then look at the effect of this word, what it means, and then how that shows up in Revelation 7, which we read every year on this because it's where we're headed. And then I'll turn to think for just a few minutes before we close about uh, the implications that that puts on us as we uh, consider who we are in the light of who God is and what he's done in Christ. So, um, if we think about the word amen, very often it's used almost in a, as a ritualized conclusion to prayer. It's like we go through, we pray, and then we say amen, you know, exclamation point uh, on our prayer, and then we get back to real life, you know. Um, but it's so much more. It's so much more. If we think about the word amen, it's used socially by believers and non-believers alike. It's a responsive interjection that's just kind of tossed in there. 
Um, say, for example, it, it, it kind of works like the word cheers in British English. Uh, it could mean anything, right? Um, so uh, it could mean good, fine, okay. Would you like some tea? Amen. Um, or it could, um, it could be used as, um, you know, to say, correct, that's right, exactly, absolutely. Such as, we didn't make good use of our time. <laughs> Amen, brother. Or it could be used as a term of consent. I agree, by all means, I consent. Like, we really need to take better care of mom. She's aging. Amen. It's used a lot theologically in the Bible. It's used 30 times in the Old Testament, 123 times in the New Testament. Uh, and the, even the New Testament, is the translation's di brought directly over from the Hebrew into the Greek. And there are lots of cognates, you know, lots of uh, similar words that are attached to it. Uh, for example, in its verbal form, amam, uh, it means he confirmed, he upheld, he assured, even he guarantees. Uh, it's also got a noun form, amet, which means certainty, dependability, maybe even truth. Um, but when it comes to amen, it's used two ways in the Old Testament. One is it's used as a, as a confirmation of, say, a prayer, a statement, maybe even a vow or a covenant, where people witness and listen and they assent. They go, amen. That's where you probably have heard the translation, so be it. How many of you have heard so be it? Amen means so be it. And that's where that comes from. It's also used differently in the Old Testament because sometimes it's used at the beginning of a sentence rather than a responsive interjection, uh, where what it says in this sense is that what you're about to hear is completely dependable or true. Jeremiah, for example, when he's talking to false prophets, particularly Hananiah, uh, I always get this wrong, but it's Jeremiah like 28 or something like that. He starts by saying, Amen, you're lying. Um, and what he's saying is, this is true, this is dependable, you are lying, you're a false prophet. Hmm. Uh, it's used throughout the New Testament, as I suggest, 123 times. Um, and it's used by most of the epistles in a similar fashion to the Old Testament. Uh, where, you know, St. Paul is always wandering off in these mystical fits with doxologies and prayers and, and blessings, and he comes to the end and he goes, Amen. So be it. Um, and that carries on in St. Peter and Jude and various points in, in Revelation. But Jesus, oh, that sneaky Jesus, he's always turning things on its ear, on its ear isn't he? Jesus comes along and turns it on its ear and, and starts to use it in a way that would have been shocking in the ears of his hearers. Because he would say, well, prophets would say, thus saith the Lord, and then make a proclamation. Jesus never used it as a responsive thing. There's no amen at the end of the Lord's prayer. He uses it at the beginning when he makes statements. And he says, for example, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, amen, you've heard it said in those days of old, you shall not commit adultery. Amen. I say to you that whoever looks at a woman in lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. For Jesus to start talking about the law and then reinterpret the law by saying amen, whoa. This means, this means he's 
claiming divinity or authority, like as if he's the source. And sure enough, he is. That's a bold move. He's asserting that he is the Son of God, that he has the authority to help us understand what the meaning of the law and how it works goes. And uh, it just runs all through the, the New Testament, particularly the Gospels. Almost 70 times, Jesus starts a phrase with amen. I'll just give you a few of them. Very bold comments. Amen, amen, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Amen, amen, I say to you, Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, it will be given to you. There's a claim. Amen, amen, I say to you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And on and on. He does this repeatedly, making very bold assertions. When we say amen, the themes that run through all of that, the two things that we are doing when we say amen, are number one, we affirm God's rock-solid dependability and faithfulness. It's an affirmation. Boom. It's an acclamation. This is God. We believe this. And we affirm our consent to the reign of God over us. Those two things. God and our response in faith. That's the nature and the life of a saint, isn't it? That's sainthood. And so on this day, the word amen captures something for us. Amen. I want to turn and look at Revelation, uh, the Revelation 7 passage, because in it we see both the dependability, the faithfulness, the goodness of God being played out, the promise of God brought to its fullness, and we read this every year, and we also see our call to consent to what God has in store for us. So, before I look at Revelation 7, let me just say uh, briefly that the way I look at Revelation and the way many look at Revelation is it's not prescriptive so much as descriptive. A lot of ink has been spilt, a lot of air has been released, um, which will look around for, ooh, that one's the beast, and that famine there, ooh, the time's coming, and uh-oh, we've only got X amount of time. <clears throat> Revelation is written descriptively, because when it was written by St. John, the Roman Empire was in full sway, and it was, it was starting to turn awfully decadent. Uh, the Pax Romano, if you know that term. Um, and what Revelation, as I understand it, is, is the world is raging out of control. And then we get these glimpses where God lifts the veil and says, yes, but I'm at work, and all things are working out. I am in control. And the veil goes down, and it goes back to these horrendous things that go on. And it was so in St. John's Day, and I don't need to convince you much that it's true today. If we just think about past month, the world is raging out of control, and our hope never was in this world. Our hope is in God, who's gone, and the Lord Jesus, who's gone to prepare a place for us, that where he is, we might be also. So as we go through Revelation, there are all these throne room scenes that just remind us, no, 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 psst, don't look at me. Look at me. Come here, I'm at the helm. You're going to make it. And the veil drops, 
And it goes back to the madness of the world. So with that in mind, let me walk through Revelation 7, because to me, it is it's one of my favorite scriptures. I know that I've shared this with others in this congregation at different times, but we can never stop hearing this, because this is our story. This is, this is where we're headed. This is the promise of God, and this is a picture of salvation in its fullness, because God is not just interested in salvation that's, that's above the head only but in salvation that is holistic, that is head and hearts and hands. God wants to save us in every way imaginable, and I believe when we get here, we'll fall on our faces and realize it's even bigger than we thought. Um, so here's John. He, uh, he's, he's caught up in this vision. He's in exile, and he starts with saying, after this, I looked in the throne room there, and he says, there was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white with palm branches in their hands. The first picture of salvation is social salvation. There are no haves, no have-nots, no people who are in power and people who are oppressed. Everybody is in front of the throne, the seat of power. And the right power is exercised by the only one who can actually manage it and handle it. And so here we are, every tongue, tribe, and nation, because God wants that kind of diversity. He created us in different races because we're gifts to each other. And we are a picture of his beauty played out in creation. And so there we are, before the throne of God. And... Enrobed in white, sign of purity, and with palm branches in their hands, waving palm branches back and forth, which is a sign of victory, a sign of celebration. When Jesus comes in in the triumphal entry, when, when David comes into Jerusalem with the Ark of the Covenant to take it up to the hill, people are waving palm branches and celebrating. I just, I think of, of Psalm 126, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, then were we like those who dreamed. Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongues with joy. We, here, here John is in front of the throne with all these people, unnumberable, celebrating. And can you imagine we have waited for this day and the tears. Have you ever had that happen to you where you have longed for deliverance? You've longed for that day and finally it comes and it just feels like a dream. That was John's experience. He's struggling to put things into words. Well, here they are, all the redeemed, and they cry out in a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation is not something that we do. It's not something we create. They know that they, the only reason they're there is because God has willed it and God has done it. Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne. He is the source of power. He is the one who calls the shots and to the Lamb who has effected that salvation. And then the salvation narrative keeps unfolding. Because as they're gathered and as the salvation picture starts to unfold and it's laid out in front of us and, and the saints acclaim that salvation belongs to God, the angels and all the elders that stand around the throne and the four living creatures get in on it and they fall on their faces with the only proper response. 
to the goodness and salvation of God. Worship. And they start singing, Amen. This is dependable. This is sure. This is true. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever. This is it. This is dependable and true forever. This is what's going on. God's blessing and God's praise and his glory and his wisdom and thanksgiving and honor go to him because of his power and his might. And they end with that final consent. Amen. Then one of the elders addresses John and says, who are these robed in white and where have they come from? Seems like a rhetorical question. Uh, he knew the answer, but he was asking John so that John would reflect. Uh, and John, of course, this is all. He's grasping to put the ineffable into words. John is like, uh, I could just see him like struggling to put it into words. And uh, kind of like, you're from around these parts. I'm a newcomer, you know. <laughs> Sir, you are the one who knows. Then the elder said to me, these are they who've come out of the great ordeal. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are the people who've come out of the tribulation, not some thousand-year thing or some fancy. This is the tribulation we call life, the tribulation that we've experienced here in this city in the past week and in this nation for the past several months of infighting and division, the tribulation that we've seen in storms, the tribulation we've seen in floods, the tribulation in pipe bombs, on and on and on. These are those who've come out of the great tribulation that we call life because it's run amok. It's wild and out of control. And they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That it's the blood of Jesus, the power the cleansing and the healing that comes from Jesus and Jesus alone that has opened to us this throne room, the door into this room. And he goes on to say, for this reason, they are before the throne of God. It's Jesus. And they worship him night and day within his temple. It's the only proper response. And then we see salvation starts to unfold even more the one who's seated on the throne will shelter them. Shelter, if you could read it in the Greek, it's, it, it means tent or tabernacle. Uh, it's translated various ways. But the one who's seated on the throne will shelter them. And it's worth thinking that in Middle Eastern culture, hospitality is the defining feature of the character of a man or woman. That whether or not you extend hospitality, I know what you're like. And hospitality, God's hospitality, he spreads his tent, come into my home. You will miss nothing. The larder is full, fridge is full. Help yourself. Would you like another bite? Would you like another glass of wine? Would you like a cup of tea? Nothing, nothing in God's home will be amiss for us. He spreads his shelter over us and we're home. The hunger, they will hunger no more and thirst no more. Material salvation. The sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat. In the Middle East, when it gets hot, you need shade. And the promise is 
The sun's not going to strike you, nor scorching heat. You've got protection from the elements. Um, the front of this has the same, a similar passage from Revelation 21, where, um, where John says, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things has passed away. It is done. Added to all of this salvation. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. It's interesting that a lamb will be a shepherd. It's usually lambs who are being shepherded. But in this case, in the incarnation that Jesus took on flesh and blood, became every bit of human that you and I are. And he was every bit of God that the Father is. Is the one who leads in this case. The lamb at the center of the throne who humbled himself and took on flesh and was wounded for our transgression by his stripes were healed, leads us. And he will guide them to springs of the water of life. Spiritual salvation, the Holy Spirit welling up from within us. And then ultimately, God himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Mental and emotional salvation. God is interested in all of it. He's not parsing out. I'll give you this. I'll take that. This is what it is to come under his shelter. This is what it is when the saints go marching in. This is what we celebrate today because this is our story. I often say we're a people shaped more by our future than by our past. The past has shaped us, but the future is, is what we're really shaped for. And in that passage, what the saints are doing and showing what the passage has for us is to say, God is dependable, trustworthy, true, absolutely rock solid, and invites us to consent to his work in our lives now and forevermore that he might bring this about in us and for us. So I want to think for just a couple minutes before I close, because this is our story, right? Um, what does this word amen mean for us spiritually? And actually, how does it show up liturgically? Because we've already said amen several times in this liturgy, and we're only getting started. There, there are 12 times in this particular liturgy that we say amen. And what we're saying is, we affirm that you are dependable. God, in your character, you are faithful, and you are true. And we also affirm that we consent to your activity. Bring this about. We long for that day. This is what it means to be a saint. A saint. The acts of God and our ascent, our consent. So let's just consider a couple of the ways we've already said and what we will say in terms of amen. The collect for purity that we said at the beginning says, we trust and consent to our being cleansed by the Holy Spirit so that we can praise you like the way you deserve, God. And God's people say, um, the Gloria, we trust and consent and we join in to praise you, God, for your majesty and glory. The collect of the day, we trust and consent to you, God, asking for grace that we might, like the saints, grow in grace 
and virtue and godliness. The creed will say, we trust and consent to the historic faith in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as witnessed by the apostles and handed on to the church. Amen. In the confession, well, actually in the prayers, let's just think about that. The concluding collect to the prayers, we say, we trust you, God, and we consent to your response to our prayers however you want. The doxology, we trust and consent to God, receiving his due praise from all of creation. Amen. The great amen at the Eucharist, this is central. We trust and consent that we are the people of the resurrection and we live in its power. Amen. The Lord's Prayer. We trust and consent to God as Father. His will, provision for all our needs, his forgiveness, protection, and his glory. Amen. Uh, in receiving communion, we reach out our hands and we receive from him the infilling of his presence, the assurance of his presence at work in our lives. And we say, the post-communion prayer of thanksgiving, we trust and consent to his being with us, to feeding us, to strengthening us, and to sending us out into the world to be his agents of good and healing. And then finally, we come to the blessing. And our consent is that we trust and consent in his blessing of our lives to seal us unto the day of his coming again. Amen. Amen is perhaps the most potent prayer and attitude that we can offer to God. It acknowledges that God is good and loving and wise and faithful and dependable and true and fill in the blanks. We'll never get to the end of giving him the praise that he deserves or describing all of his wonderful attributes. And it also is our consent to his salvation and his reign over the world in which we live and the lives that we have in it. God is the God of the Amen. That's what Isaiah calls him, Isaiah 65, because he's trust trustworthy, dependable, true, rock solid. And we are the people of the Amen because of his work in our lives. Can I say a blessed all saints to you? May your trust, your hope, your joy in him grow more and more from this day until we see him face to face. And the church says, Amen.